And tonight we find ourselves in Revelation 15 and 16, and I hope you're there. And the title of my message this evening is The Voices of Victory Part 2. At the end of World War II, we discovered that as it grew certain that the end of the war was almost about to dawn, that victory was at hand, there was a sense of excitement, but there was also a a concern that to get to that position of victory, there would still have to be great sacrifice involved. And that's exactly what happened. When the war in Europe began to wind down and, and the Hitler made that great mistake of dividing his forces eastward towards the Russians and westward towards the Allies and split his division in two, weakening his military uh, dramatically and putting himself in such a vulnerable position that it was almost a ma- a ma- just a matter of time until he came to defeat. And as the Allied forces pushed in from the west, Eisenhower stated that he saw that the end was near. Of course, D-Day still had to come, which was going to be a horrific event. And he saw that the Russians were having great success pushing from the east. At the beginning, they did not. And uh, the Nazi troops got all the way to Stalingrad until the Russian forces pushed them back. But there was a sense that victory was near. And people started preparing for that victory. And there was this excitement, there was this renewed vigor, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. The same thing was happening here in the United States of America, as Japan was now being crippled, and they knew it was only a matter of time, and then Truman went one step further and dropped the two bombs that changed the course of history forever. There was this excitement, but there also was the reality that there was still yet great sacrifice needed before victory could be at hand. That's the sense that I get here in our text. That victory is at hand and there are voices of victory beginning to shout out and to cry out, the end is near. That time that God has promised is almost here. And yet there is still great, vic- there is still great sacrifice that must be made to finally get to that point that climaxes in the return of Jesus Christ. And as we looked at last time together, as we came through these voices of victory that continue into chapters 15 and 16, we come to two chapters that can be summed up in this way. Repent. The end is near. Judgment is coming. Repent. The end is near. Judgment is coming. This is the message that sums up these next two chapters. But again, there's an excitement amongst God's people and they stand out and they sing songs of victory that is still yet to be had. Even though the days are growing darker, even though the society around us seems more illogical than ever before and people are making decisions like you never expected them to make. Though you see the geopolitical landscape and you shake your head and say, how is this possible? Understand that behind all of it is God orchestrating and developing and setting the stage for the final act for the final chapter. 
that will culminate and climax in the return of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this evening in chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, we continue our look at this incredible book as we ramp up to the last of the seven judgments that God will pour out upon the world that are known as the seven bowl judgments. We have already seen seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and contained in the last of each of those was found seven more. At the end of the seven seal judgments contained in that seventh seal was seven trumpets. At the seventh trumpet was contained within that trumpet the seven bowls. But after the seven bowls, it is done. It is finished, which we will read for ourselves in just a moment. There is great parity between the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments, and some even believe that they are one and the same, though I believe that they are consecutive and they are still a further seven judgments that must take place. And the world will be brought to its knees in these last seven judgments. The grammar shows us that these judgments will pour very quickly out upon the world, meaning they'll go in great succession, one right after another. And they will start in the same fashion as uh, the severity will increase as they get closer to the seventh judgment. And God will deal in a final stroke with the rebellion of the world against Him and against His only begotten Son. And we are introduced to the seven angels that will pour out these seven plagues in chapter 15 that only contains eight verses. And then I saw another sign in heaven. This is John writing and speaking. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For within them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing behind the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave the the seven angels seven bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It all comes to an end. 
As we've read through the book of Revelation, it's astonishing to see what God was required to do to bring all things back to the way he originally will intend them to be. It's fascinating to me. As we read, as as we have read, I should say, through this book, we have gone through seven seal judgments. We've gone through seven trumpet judgments. We've seen extraordinary events take place. Demonic activity like never before. And all of this to bring about the end. And now we are oh so close to the end. In the last seven judgments through these bowls, it is finished, it is done. God's wrath, undiluted, is now being poured out upon the world. The judgment of God in full force. And yet amongst it all, we have a song of rejoicing. As we see those who have been preserved and kept through this tribulation period, As we have seen in chapter 7, the 144,000 who are preserved. As we see later in chapter 7, those who come out of the great tribulation, this time of trial and trouble and torment. And John standing astonished, looking at all of these individuals and the angel telling him, these are all that have come out of the tribulation period. These are the ones that God has seen through to the end. And it is so fitting for them to rejoice as Moses rejoiced after coming through the Red Sea. We have in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, two songs of Moses. One's found in Exodus 15 and the other one found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In both of those songs, Moses sums up what God has done to deliver his people Israel from the hand of their enemy. Specifically in Exodus 15, we read and discover how Moses rejoices after being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, who, as you know, kept the people of Israel under his servanthood for quite some time. 400 years they were in Egypt. And now God, through a series of judgments and preserving his people as he dealt with the nation of Egypt, saw them out, led them out, crossing through the Red Sea, which he parted himself. And at the end of it all, Pharaoh being dealt with in one decisive manner as God brought the Red Sea in upon Pharaoh and his troops and delivered his people Moses rejoiced in a song as he stood on the shore. That's what I see here, the sea of glass mingled with fire. As these people who have been preserved have been now brought through the tribulation period, now rejoice in the same manner that Moses did. Let me give you just a few excerpts of that song in which Moses sung. In Exodus 15.2, he states, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. In verse 11 of that same chapter, Moses goes on to sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or in verse 13, You have led in your steadfast love the people of whom you have redeemed and have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And lastly, in verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. 
And then we compare it to this song that these individuals sing. Knowing that they are now preserved and have been brought through, they state, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In verse 3, it says the song of Moses has been coupled with the song of the Lamb. Some believe that the first stance has more to do with the deliverance, and in verse 4, the second stance has more to do with Christ himself. Either way, they are rejoicing through it all. But know this, that as God has preserved them, so God preserves you. That you are in His hand, and nothing will snatch you out of His hand. And as you walk with Him, and you have that surety of salvation in Christ and Christ alone, and have been given the seal of the Holy Spirit within you, you can know that God has you in His hand, and will see you through to the end. For He who has started a good work in you is faithful to complete that work that He started in you. That same preservation, even in the midst of great judgment. And it is easy to see the characteristics of God's grace and mercy throughout the book of Revelation until we come to this point and His wrath is now undiluted. It is complete and straight and concentrated completely without mercy as He deals with finality with these people. Knowing this, that at the end every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the hope of it all. I don't know about you, but as the world continues on in the path and the direction that it is going, I ask you this evening, is there anything more precious to you than your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there anything in this world that you would even consider trading or uh, giving up your relationship with Christ for? And the answer should be a resounding no. There's nothing in this world. Over the last 28 years of walking with the Lord myself, I will tell you that I am more certain of that fact today than I ever have been before. When I look at my particular personal life, I see that everything that I have, God has given me, including this ministry specifically, my wife, my daughter, my, my whole body of friends, it is all a result of God. And God has seen us through trials and tribulations and any one of us could sing this song to a certain degree. As one wrote, he said, taken as a whole, Revelation 15 through 5 through 8 presents a fearful picture of the impending divine judgment on the wicked world. The judgments which are to be poured out in chapter 16 fully justify this ominous instruction. As another commentator wrote, Chuck Swindoll, these bowls connected with the bowls filled with the prayers for the vindication offered by the martyred believers in chapter 5. They are the direct response to that plea for God to avenge the suffering and, the, and death. 
these bowls of wrath also begin to answer the age-old question of why wicked, uh, why the wicked seem to go unpunished while the righteous suffer injustice. The truth is, is that God's mercy during the tribulation delayed for the full measure of judgment to give people an opportunity to repent. But we must never presume on God's mercy. Judgment postponed is not the same as judgment denied. As you and I see the world heading in the direction that it is, as you and I see individuals continuing to harden their heart against the Lord, know that pending judgment awaits them. You and I have been saved by the person of Christ. As God reached out of heaven through Christ to save you and I, He offers that same salvation to those that we know that are currently living in rebellion against Him. But judgment is a reality. You and I come to church each and every Sunday and we can worship God. And one of those things that we should worship God for is the fact that Christ experienced the judgment and the wrath of the Father on our behalf. I don't know if that often enters in our mind when we come and worship God. When we come and we sing about His grace, do we know what we've actually been spared? And do we understand what Christ suffered on our behalf? And many today are becoming emboldened because they don't think that the judgment of God is ever truly going to come. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus. Remember, Peter addressed this specifically, and he said, don't consider God lax in his promises, but more he is long-suffering, desiring that all come to repentance. That's his desire. But a, a finality and a point in time will come when the judgment of God will be poured out upon this earth. As Swindoll said so uh, appropriately, but we must never presume on God's mercy Judgment postponed is not the same as judgment denied. Sometimes people justify their sin thinking that either it is okay or God approves of it because they do something and they don't seem to suffer any consequence for it. They seem to have gotten away with it. So it must not be all that wrong in the sight of God, even though God says clearly in His Word that this is something that He opposes. There is no fear of the Lord anymore in the world. And, unfortunately, the fear of the Lord is greatly being diminished in the hearts of believers today also, allowing them to move into areas that God would not have them to go. I bring all of this up because I think there are two things that you and I should consider. A.W. Tozer wrote, We talk of God much and loudly, but we secretly think of Him as being absent. And we think of ourselves as inhabiting a parathetical interval between the God who was and the God who will be. As the commentator went on after quoting Tozer, he said, The song of Moses draws on God's past deliverance. The song of the Lamb looks forward to his future vengeance. Yet John's vision of joy in heaven and sorrow on the earth in Revelation 15 should turn our attention 
to our very own situation today. Number one, we should express gratitude for the promises of God of preservation and protection. Number one, we should always express gratitude for God's promises of protection and and um, preservation that he currently holds us within. And number two, our second response to this chapter should be this. should be our concern for those who choose to reject Christ. Again, we are going to see as we move into chapter 16 individuals that have hardened their heart as Pharaoh did that even in the most grievous trials and in the wake of the most excruciating pain they are going to still continue to reject God. It is concerning to me how many individuals continue to reject God over and over and over again. God tells us that one day they will come to a point where they have hardened their heart, where He then hardens their heart, and they will not come to repentance. He desires all, knows that all will not come, and knows that many will harden their hearts against Him. You and I should be actively involved, especially in the in the lack of understanding that our culture has of the current time in which we are in, we should be busy about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, that if we can look at the landscape, the horizon, if you will, and see the imminent return of Jesus Christ through the signs in which He's given us through His Word and in our world, And if the world looks at those things and does not see any of that, we must then be actively involved in opening their eyes to that reality. Showing them through the Word of God. Demonstrating it to them. Not through hype. Not through conjecture. Not through speculation. Not through conspiracy theories. Let's get beyond all of that, okay? Because the world has written those things off And they think that individuals who perpetuate these things are just ludicrous. There's an ultimate conspiracy theory, isn't there? And we all believe it, part of our theology. And that is that Satan, the ruler of this world, is going to do all that he can to turn people and to draw people away from Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate conspiracy theory right then and there. We don't have to go any farther than that. Governments will come and go individuals will come and go kings will come and go nations will come and go empires will come and go but god's word stays eternal we should be pointing them back to scripture and showing them that in insecure world uh, they can only find security in god i find that to be an exceptionally uh, fruitful manner of approaching witnessing this is the tactic that i use with my father that I use with my neighbors, I show them through the Word of God how they can have stability in an unstable, an unstable world. And it's amazing to how many are asking questions. It's amazing how many have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing where you find these people. Just the other day, Dina Autumn and I went out to a sushi bar And we were sitting at the sushi bar, enjoying our dinner, and two young gals sit down next to us. 
And they both had the most vibrant color hair that you ever want to see. I mean, it was unbelievable. Now that, my wife just can't walk past that, being a hairstylist as she is. She's got to talk to these young girls. And of course it leads right into the gospel and so on and so forth. And as we were talking to these young girls and as we were uh, spending some time there at the sushi bar with them, as Dina was just about to get into the gospel, the young girl flipped over her arm and on her arm she had cuts all the way up and then two all the way down. She had been cutting herself. Looking for some kind of relief from despair or depression or whatever it may be. Many who cut themselves do so to simply get a rush of endorphins to try to alleviate the depression in which they're in. And again, right then and there, we were confronted with the hopelessness of this world. And the way these two girls looked, they were undoubtedly looking and crying out for attention because they had or they believed that they don't have an identity that allows them to stand with any kind of security in and of themselves. We talk about identity theft all the time, but I don't think we've realized how much a lack of identity has truly, truly uh, affected and afflicted our society. And I will tell you, Christians, they have lost their understanding of their identity in Jesus Christ. Why do I say all of this? Because we are seeing a fallen world spinning out of control and we need to respond now more than ever. You have the answer. Do you think it was an accident that those two girls just happened to sit down right then and there? I mean, it was so appropriate. We were eating fish. How biblical is that? And they just sat down and Dina started talking with them and then Dina gave them some literature and then Dina talked with them some more. It was so appropriate. That was a God appointment. And we went home that night and we prayed for those two young gals that God would open up their eyes and save them from the sin that is destroying their lives. But these individuals have hardened their hearts and they've come to a place that leads us to chapter 16. And the final wrath of God is poured out upon the world. Now again, notice the contrast between those who have been preserved through this judgment and now those who we will see who are at the brunt of this judgment. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath, of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image." In these plagues we and bold judgments, we are going to discover a great parallel to the judgments that God used on Egypt to deliver his people. The bowls that they are speaking of are very small, shallow bowls. And they are used to hold just a limited amount, 
but they are used to be poured out in their entirety, meaning that the purpose of the design of the bowl is that nothing be left in it after the contents have been consumed, meaning the bowl was designed to let forth all of its contents out as it is being consumed. Here, it is the wrath of God being poured out through these bowls. And in the first one, sores. And these sores seem to be limited to those who have taken the mark of the beast, which constitutes his name, and worshipped the image as we saw in Revelation 13. The second angel then poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became like blood. And I heard an angel say, I'm sorry, and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Again, the blood in all of the natural waterways, giving them no refreshment, just as we saw in Egypt. As Moses dipped his staff into the river Nile, here all of the waterways such as all of the waterways uh, and water that was in jugs and pots and springs in Egypt were affected and turned into blood. But it is a proportionate response to that which the world has done. As the blood of the saints and the prophets have been shed, it is only right that you have given them blood to drink. Notice this last phrase. It is what they deserve. It is what they deserve. When I read that, I needed to take a moment to remind myself of what I deserve and what I've been spared. I think that if we are going to walk properly as Christians, we must remember what we deserved and what we have been spared by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I think that's the beginning of all of the reality of knowing how to walk as a Christian. If you want to avoid sin, walk away from sin and do what is right, remember that which you were deserved and remember that which you were spared. It shows me that Christ then should be preeminent in every aspect of my personal life. And that I can only stand before God the Father because of the finished work of Christ. So that should lead me to not a position of pride before God or before anyone, but a position of humility. It should also lead me to a position of surrender, knowing that I am no longer my own, but I have been bought and paid for, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that I am His, to do His bidding as He so deserves. This is the beginning of the understanding. The reason I bring this up today is that 
if you discuss sin with someone today, have you noticed that it doesn't seem to have the same impact upon their conscience that it once did? There isn't the guilt and the remorse or even the condemnation associated with a lot of that wrongdoing anymore in many people's minds. It's because the world has told them that they are not wrong, they are merely a victim of something, or that the world does it so it's okay with God because the world's done it so God thinks it's okay. As long as it's okay with society and you're not breaking any laws, there is no understanding of sin any longer, real true understanding of sin in many minds and hearts any longer, that when you bring sin to their attention, they almost recoil. That they don't even want to acknowledge that reality. And therefore, when you talk to them about judgment, they don't believe that's what they deserve. But when I read this word here, I'm reminded of myself and that God will hold all people accountable, including you. And if you are His and you are in sin, understand uh, that He will chasten those in whom He loves. And one of the sins that I think we need, we need to be ultimately aware of today is the sin of idolatry. We must be so aware of what idolatry is today because I see that that is the sin that is truly creeping up in so many people's hearts and minds. And their adoration and their worship, even though unintentional, is being given to that thing. And they have an idol in their life. Adultery, I'm sorry, idolatry, which is spiritual adultery, is something that many, many Christians need to understand and to concern themselves about and understand that this is what Christ has come to deliver us from and therefore we should not give ourselves over to these things because what we deserved has been bought and paid for in Him and now we should live for His glory and His purposes. That's a strong word there. It's easy just to pass it off and say, yes, that's what they deserve. But personalize it. What do I deserve? I deserve the wrath of God. And if it wasn't for Christ, that's exactly what I would be facing. That's the reality here. But His judgment is just. He has been long-suffering. He has been merciful. He has been loving. And yet they continue to deny Him and resist Him and rebel against Him. And so the judgment continues in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. Notice what they do. They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give Him glory. They chose to resist even further. In fact, they go to the point to begin to curse the name of God. How low does someone need to go before they will turn to God? It was something that I remember often hearing Christians speaking and praying for. Lord, just bring them to the end. Bring them to the bottom, Lord. So they cry out and they reach out to you. I'm not sure there is a bottom anymore because I've seen people go pretty low and not turn to God. In fact, often I've seen people get so low that they get mad at God, thinking it's Him 
that has brought them to that point rather than the decisions in which they have made that has brought them to that point. But how low does a person have to go? Here we see that they are in the fourth wave of plague. They are being scorched by fire. They are cursing the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent. They did not give Him glory. That led to the fifth angel who poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Just like Egypt was plunged into darkness. It was a regional darkness. It was not a global darkness. But notice how difficult the darkness actually was. And that the pain that the people must have been in to go to this length. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They actually chewed their tongue in hope of relief from the pain in which they were experiencing. That's exactly what it says in the Greek. That they chewed their tongues They gnawed at their tongues in the wake of this darkness, in the wake of everything that has happened up until this point. Jesus talked about such an event and he casts the worthless servant into the outer darkness and a place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. And then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up. Specifically, I added that, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, our terrible trio, our villains, if you were, of this great uh, epic, came out of their mouths three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits. So we don't even have to try to guess what these things are, we are told. Performing signs and who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then the Lord speaks. Behold, I am coming quickly. I'm coming, excuse me, like a thief in the night. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Within the sixth angel and the sixth bowl that dries up the Euphrates rivers for the specific purpose of allowing the kings from the east into the land, the Euphrates River is the river that separates Israel from all the nations going east, which would be India, China, Japan, etc. If you look therefore on a map, and allowing the kings of the east to come and to gather and being drawn to this locality by the demonic spirits of the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast himself. What is happening here is the gathering of Armageddon. 
Some call it the battle of Armageddon, but the Greek word could also mean the war of Armageddon because we don't know exactly how long this battle lasts. The battle of Armageddon today, and the word Armageddon is used synonymously for the end times, the catastrophe, for the apocalyptic events that will transpire before the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, movies have been called Armageddon, the world is at the end, etc., Armageddon has become that world, that word to demonstrate that uh, that event. Harmageddon, H-A-R-Mageddon, is the actual phrase here that is in the Greek, and it means the hills of Megiddo. And hills can often offer us the, another insight, which means valleys. There's hills and valleys that all coincide one with another. And this is an actual place in Israel today called the Valley of Megiddo. It is a place that you can go and visit today and numerous battles have taken place there. Battles all the way up until the 1900s where the British uh, took on the Turkish army there in the Valley of Megiddo. It appears that this last battle will be fought as the nation's in a last-ditch effort, try to rebel against the return of God, Jesus Christ himself, will do so from this locality. Now, further information is given from Israel's point of view if you believe that Zechariah 12 and 14 speak of this period of time. Where in actuality... Zechariah 12 and 14 give us insight that these nations coming into this region being drawn in through demonic forces, and that's not uncommon. For, uh, we saw in the book of 1 Kings, I think it was, where uh, God says to one, who will go and draw these nations in? And one of the spirits says, I will go and I will go and lie to them and I will draw them into battle. So we have precedence for this type of action. But it appears from these texts in Zechariah that they are initially coming against Jerusalem, which is the epicenter, the locale where the Antichrist is reigning from, and most likely coming against him. But then they will be drawn out as God, uh, uh, God draws them out. They will be drawn out, I should say, to the Valley of Megiddo, which is not far from there. And at that point, they will turn their attentions to the returning Christ himself. Let me read a couple of the passages out of Zechariah for you. This valley is about 14 miles long, 120 miles wide. Um, I'm sorry, wide, 14 miles wide, 120 miles long. Listen to what Zechariah says. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inheritance of Jerusalem may not be surpassed that of Judah. And on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one who mourns for a child and weeps bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 11. On that day 
uh, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Haddon Rimeon in the plain of Megiddo. Later, in Zechariah 14, 1 through 4, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and there shall be taken uh, the houses plunder and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations who, ha- who he fights on the day of battle. And the day of his feet, I'm sorry, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, if these events coincide with the return of Christ as they mourn him who he's pierced, and also as his feet place themselves on the Mount of Olives, which is the locality in which he is going to return, then what we have here is that the initial intent of these is to come against Jerusalem. They will have a certain degree of success. God will then step in. He will separate them, draw them out. They will gather them there in the plain of Megiddo. And then at that moment, Christ will return. They will direct all of their rebellious energy and attention towards Jesus Christ at that moment. And it's at that moment that God laughs from heaven and asks the question, why do the nations rage? Which we read out of Psalm 2. The last effort, this battle of Armageddon is the last effort of the world to stand in resistance and in rebellion to God. The valley of Megiddo. But let us not miss verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, meaning knows, understands, and is aware. Keeping his garments on. The garment that was a practical sense of righteousness, meaning he was walking in the newness of life in which God had given him. But we are also to put on this nature and to remain in practical holiness. That's what he is saying here. And not to go about naked as to see or to expose, meaning do not relinquish the, the righteousness in which we should walk just simply due to the difficulties that are at hand, but continue to walk and to stay and to keep on the garment in which he has placed upon you. And in verse 16, again, they assembled them in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. As one pastor wrote, <clears throat> the word Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter. It is also called the plain of Esterlan or the valley of Jazir. This area is about 14 miles wide and about, I'm sorry, 20 miles long and forms what Napoleon called the most natural battlefield on all the earth. Which leads us to the last and the seventh angel who poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, It is done almost sounding in parallel with the words of Christ, it is finished, it is done, it is complete. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and great earthquake, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city was split into three parts. 
and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be formed. And great hailstone about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This is how it concludes. In one final act, which John will expound upon and elaborate on in chapters 17 and 18, as this earthquake comes upon the earth and splits the great city into three parts, what city is it speaking of? It's a great question. For there are three great cities in the book of Revelation. Revelation 11, the great city, is where Jesus Christ was crucified. Jerusalem. The city is Babylon uh, in, Revel- in Revelation 18. And then we also have an allusion to the great city, and some commentators believe that it's Rome. But I believe that it is speaking here of Babylon. The great city is referring to Babylon that God will deal with in 17 and 18 in an extraordinary fashion, which we'll talk about more once we get there. But notice that the islands fled. That word fled there can mean meaning that they just, they diminished. They're gone. No more mountains were to be found. And hail, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. One wrote this, and we'll conclude with this. What he describes in short order is nothing less than chilling if we read these words using our imagination. Lightning flashes from one end to the other of heaven. The thunder roars throughout the atmosphere. The worst earthquake in history shakes the world. The Antichrist capital city is split into three. The islands sink into the ocean. The mountains collapse into the earth. Hundreds pound hailstorms plummet the earth. What's left of human civilization is shaken to its Stone Age foundation, clearing the earth for the extreme makeover that is about to take place. Revelation describes nothing less than the end of the world as we know it. Everything about the earth, including its typography, will be prepared for a new regime, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. There's two things I want to leave you with this evening as we close. This world always seems to give us a distorted picture of justice. How often do you think as you listen to the news that someone got away with it again? That our judicial system is so flawed that justice doesn't seem to be carried out any longer. Where where we are arresting individuals for standing up for their convictions and putting them in jail suppressing any religious freedoms that that individual may have. And yet those who seem to just continue in their era of corruption seem to go free year after year after year. Here in our own state, we are now the brunt of 
one comic after another stating that our governors have the best retirement policy or uh, policy in place. Full room and board for the rest of their lives and three meals a day and even a place where they can go outside and walk three or four hours a day. It's amazing. But yet, this distortion of justice that we see here on this earth is all going to be rectified in the return of Jesus Christ. No longer will that distortion exist. No longer will the wicked continue to get away with what they get away with. And we only see what we see, but remember, God sees it all. I can't even imagine what that is like. The second thing I want to walk away with this is, is this. Escaping the reality of God's judgment is impossible. We cannot be true to the Christian faith without acknowledging the judgment of God upon this earth. There's just no way we can do that. We cannot separate the two. The Christian faith includes the judgment of God upon the wicked. And as we have seen, the wicked is anyone who is living in rebellion against God. Anyone who's living apart from God, apart from Christ. This is the reality. So number one, let us understand that though justice may be distorted today, it's all going to come to perfect clarity and all be resolved in the return of Jesus Christ, number one. And number two, let us understand that the reality of God's judgment is impossible to negate. Next week, we're going to continue on with chapter 17, so please read ahead. As we are going to discover that God is going to dismantle this world system, He is going to judge it completely, bring it to a finality, and that'll position us to get to Revelation 19 for His actual return. And then spending some time in chapter 20, 21, and 22 and understanding what happens after Jesus Christ returns. We, we know, we have a good understanding of what happens before He returns, but what happens after He returns? That's where a lot of Christians seem to be a little bit more confused. The book of Revelation is certainly a book that presents many difficulties when it comes to interpretation. And those difficulties must be acknowledged. And that's certainly obvious as we've worked through this book together. There is imagery, there's symbolism here that we can only do our best to try to interpret and therefore understand. That's why the book is not meant to be just read once. I think it should be read over and over and over again. The book of Revelation should be part of your daily devotional just like any other aspect of the Bible. One person even went as far as to say the book of Revelation should be as common to you in your daily devotional as the book of Psalms is or the book of Proverbs. We need to read this over and over and over again to let it saturate our heart and our mind. I used to read the book of Revelation with great excitement, with great passion and great zeal, and now I read it with great soberness. It brings to focus a reality that I'm often unaware of that things are all coming to an end and that everything is not going to go on the same way it has been forever. It's all going to change. 
And God is going to bring everything back into the reality of what he originally desired and designed it to be before sin and the curse of sin entered into this world. Read Revelation over and over and over again. The cornerstone of the book is the return of Jesus Christ. Everything else is dressing that allows more color and detail, flavor and texture to that event. And as you read it, don't only spend time with what happens before, but also understand what happens afterwards. Because it's some of the most glorious uh, truths of the Christian faith. 